and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm excited to share a conversation with Mark Abraham. Mark is an experienced product management practitioner and is currently head of product in engagement at London-based company ASOS. Mark has worked for a large number of successful digital organizations from startups to more established businesses and has written about his learnings in the book, My Product Management Toolkit, which came out in 2018, and in the recent book, Managing Product Equals Managing Tension. So thank you, Mark, for joining us. Thank you for having me. So excited. So um, why don't we get started with a little bit about you and how you got into product? So how did you how did you get down this crazy career path? Yeah, as you say, <laughs> my it's definitely been a crazy career path getting into product. If you take into account that I started my professional life as a corporate lawyer uh, in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, which is where I'm from. Uh, so it's been quite a journey. Um, I won't give you the whole whole spiel, but basically I went from corporate law to doing an MBA because I thought law is lovely, but there must be more than this. Um, and and doing an MBA for a year here in the UK really opened my 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 eyes and ears to to everything else out there. Uh, and I decided I couldn't go back into law. And that's where the journey really got crazy because I started working in marketing and, and business development, initially still in professional services. So I worked for a huge accounting firm here in London. Uh, but that's where I had my first experience of working on a, on a software development project without even knowing it or thinking about it. So de facto, I was already doing product management and project management uh, in that in that first role. And But I really wanted to get out of professional services, move into digital, which uh, after a lot of hustling and pro bono work, I, I, I managed to do. So my first couple of roles in digital were as a project manager. Mm-hmm. So more traditional, you know, prints kind of project planning and, and managing of product uh, projects in, in agencies, mostly working with large clients. And then I discovered back in 2010 about product management I thought that's interesting because project management can feel a bit limiting at times and with product management there's so much more that you can get involved in um, and that's how my journey in, 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 in product management started and, and I can say I can really feel uh, as, as exciting and as hard as it sometimes is and we'll come to that I'm sure uh, yeah I've really found my, my calling if you like I'm, I really enjoy being a product person. Yeah well I'm sure our listeners uh, can empathize with that as you know many of us have have had that that joyful discovery at some point where we realized that this was the right fit for us Correct. Um, yeah I think one of my favorite things that I just heard you say is actually that part of how you sort of got into digital was doing some pro bono work what what uh, what kind of work did you do and how did you how did you use that to get into digital yeah so the so the 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 the, the, the first thing I the, the benefit for me was that it helped me to to build up my network. Uh, in the digital space. I worked a lot with startups uh, where you can imagine they bite your hand off if you're offering free help in terms of 
I did things like marketing planning and go-to-market strategies and helping with business cases and doing some user testing, those kinds of things. Uh, if you if you offer that kind of service for free, and and the catch for me was obviously a it helped me to build up my network uh, in in the digital space. Uh, but it also gave me stories to talk about when I started interviewing for these digital roles that I'd never, you know, I'd never done any of that formally, obviously, but to still have the stories to say, well, yes, it doesn't say on my CV, digital person, but actually I've been working with these startups. This is what they did and this is what I did. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 bring up the evidence that way. Yeah, um, that's it's uh, similar to how I got into to tech work as well. Uh, so that's one of the reasons I was sort of curious mm. about it. But you know, back in uh, back in the late two thousands, just doing free work for startups just to be a part of it and just get experience was was how I made my maneuver. Um, I think uh, I think sometimes people feel like they have to go back to school when they really don't um, have to. You know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, you have to be, it's more of a hustle. And I, I don't know about you, Holly, but there were times where people saying, oh, so you're offering me this help and it's all for free. That kind of, surely there must be some ulterior motive or, mm-hmm. uh, but then again, you know, especially if you look at startups and, and in London, it's, it's quite a strong community where people know each other and can refer you, which helps. But even today I get a lot of people getting in touch with me saying, Mark, how do I break into to product? Because it's not mm-hmm. as straightforward as some other roles. And I do refer, you know, I do refer to um, that pro bono work as one route. I'm not saying it's the route or the only route, but it's definitely a valuable route in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so you've had a lot of a lot of different experiences in product management itself. Um, tell me more about the different types of companies that you've worked for. So <laughs> I've worked, uh, yeah, I worked B2B, uh, mm-hmm. I worked B2C, I worked, you know, ASOS has got a couple of thousand people in the organization, but prior to that, I worked at an early stage startup where we had 12 people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and everything in between, right? I've worked at companies that have been around for like seven years, we're already a few rounds of funding in, uh, more global companies, more local companies, I've worked on hardware products i worked on pure software products i worked on more the content side of things as well as the more e-commerce side of things so quite a broad range yeah. of experiences there yeah absolutely so what are some of the things that you noticed uh you know that that led to your first book uh yeah that's that's quite a, a, a funny one because um one of the other things i did when i wanted to actually get out of project management and get into mm-hmm. product is I started blogging because I thought if I'm just going to learn about product management with the little I know, but if I capture that, again, I always build a repository of all the things I learned. And when I have conversations about me wanting to get into product, even though I don't have that product manager um, title on my resume, I have some stories and examples and thoughts to back it up. And mm-hmm. I literally call my blog and I still um, write for it today I call it as I learn the yeah. idea being that whenever I'd go to a conference or I'd learn something about product management thinking or a technique or I'd read a product book I'd put it there and over time after doing that for a few years people start coming to me saying Mark you know I read your blog and it was really helpful because it taught me how to speak to customers or 
I learned a lot more about coming up with hypotheses and testing those. Why don't you bundle that all in a book? Because I think that'd be really valuable. And the first couple of times I said, nah, me writing a book, that's not going to happen. And then as more people uh, said it to me, I started thinking about it. I thought, yes, let's see if I can get that into a book. And, it's, and, and that's what I did. The book is called My Product Management Toolkit. Mm-hmm. And uh, it by no means claims to be the kind of, you know, holy grail of all the product management uh, methods and tools out there. But what I do think, or what I try to get across in that book is, what does it mean to be a product person? How does it differ from other roles? And what are some key tools I think that you can use whether you're getting started as a product person or you want to upskill as a product person. So that's how that first book came about. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really good way for a book to come about, right? When people are saying you've been helpful to me and can you capture this? What are some of the um, areas from that book that you've had the most, you know, sort of people come back and say, this was really helpful to me. Maybe you can share with our listeners a little bit about things in there. It things. I think particularly from people who are quite new to product management who are, or men, people who are working with product people and just want to know what, what to expect from them, is they found it really useful, the first part of the book, where I talk a lot about what does it mean to be a product person and how is it different, for instance, from being a business analyst or a project manager like I used to be. Um, what does it mean to become a uh, – what's the risk of becoming a, a product janitor? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, lots of people have come to me and said, that's really useful because I never really understood where my role fitted or how I could maybe adjust it um, to go in the right way. And people said that really gave me a lot of, yeah, gave them a solid starting point. So that's definitely something that resonated. And I think also the tools aspect where lots of people have come back to me and said, Mark, you know, I keep your book on on my desk, which is a big compliment for me because, and they, and then refer back to it uh, on a, on a regular basis. If I want to know how to best do a roadmap or to write a user story or, you know, particularly those things I should say that people don't necessarily do on a daily basis, like things like thinking about their product strategy or thinking about the product roadmap or thinking about speaking to customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think those two elements I've, seem to have really resonated with with people both the kind of what does it mean to be a product person and the more practical kind of tooling side of things yeah that makes sense so where did you work at the time that you wrote the that you wrote the first book where i worked at a a, a fintech in um in london called world first about mm-hmm. 700 people global company and um yeah, had lots of learnings there that some of them made it into the book. Uh, but that that in itself, working there, was a really good environment because I had a really great product team there with a good mix of experience in that team. But some of the mm-hmm. tools and techniques that I was covering in the book at the time and writing about, I was actually, I was going to say teaching, but working with the guys in my team to mm-hmm. you know to see whether they needed help or upskilling. I had a few people who used to be business analysts Mm-hmm. made the transition into their first product role. So again, a lot of the tools and techniques just to get people started were mm-hmm. helpful. So it was it was a great symbiosis there because I was writing about it, but also applying some of the stuff that I was writing about on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Was uh, Was that company, how many years were you there? 
I was there about nearly two years. Mm-hmm. And uh, what what was the journey like? Did it grow during that time? Where did you see much change in how the product organization functioned? Yeah, I think the the business in itself grew a lot, particularly in, in Southeast Asia, which was a, a big part for us. And one of the key things from a product perspective and technology perspective that we did was have a dedicated product person in our Hong Kong office to really mm-hmm. to really get that kind of product drive. Uh, and from from a product organization point of view, when I came there, there were no product people. There were two business analysts um, out of a larger team who actively said, yes, we want to become um, product people. Mm-hmm. So I started working with those two and grew the team to, I think, about eight people in the end, product managers. But what was also interesting that when I arrived, there was that more classic, oh, we've got a big business and analysis and project management function and a really good team doing really good stuff. And we've got our engineering function over there, right? Yeah. Uh, your, your, um, your listeners can't, unfortunately can't see the hand movements that I'm making, but the point, is, <laughs> yeah. the point I want to get across that classic kind of, you know, it, you know, virtual that kind of imaginary fence between the two. And one of the things I think we did quite successfully is, is introduce that more cross-functional, way of working where you have small teams working on very specific product products or product features mobile app for instance mm-hmm. or um, the api which was which really needed some focus but working in that way where you've got a product person embedded in a team of engineers and designer which again was a way of working which was completely new to to that business at the time yeah. So did you encounter any resistance as you were working to, you know, coach them into working that way? Yes. I w- yes. I, I wouldn't sure, you know, call it resistance. I think it's resistance has a bit of a negative kind of undertone, but it was more, you know, people, people and change, right? It's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Yes. Uh, it's, I know it's pot psychology, but we like familiarity. We're used to it working in a certain way and then someone comes in like me and says no why are you doing it this way and let's look at working more um collaboratively and people obviously worried about especially if you have a strong project management team like how do i work with these product people right are they not going to step on my toes and where do i prove my value and where does a product person uh prove his or her value and you work through that uh, you know I've, I've learned things and i write about that in my second book where mm-hmm. a change process if you like how to best take people on a journey and there's definitely things i look back on i think i would have done that a whole lot differently uh, had I had to do it now which you, you might be interested in but uh, yeah it's a journey right you go through that process of of that classic kind of storming and, and forming and norming kind of journey Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that you just mentioned, you know, that you um, learned more uh, things that led to the second book. And and I know, um, you know, learned some of them the hard way. I know you write at the beginning of the book that the idea came for the book after your time as the, the head of product at the startup. So maybe you could tell us a little more about that. And then we can go into some of the things from the book. Yeah, that was <laughs> that. um so this was the startup that I was at, uh, a property startup here in London. And I'd been there for a year exactly. Small business, but we've already grown. And um, I was there kind of VP of product and small management team that I was part of. 
And I sat down with my boss, also a co-founder of the business, a year in. On the day, I'd been at that company for a year, so I thought we're going to reflect and uh, just have a moment to celebrate that I've been here for a year. And she asked me quite honestly how I felt, what went well, what didn't go so well. So I was very honest. And I think I mentioned things like, well, we could have been maybe been a bit more stronger on the delivery side of things and, and looked at that cadence and get things out to market faster in certain cases. And maybe I should have, in certain cases, have had a more hands-on kind of delivery project manager type of role. And uh, so I was quite honest and we were having this conversation and, and she turned around and said, Mark, I think, you know, that's exactly what you're looking for. You haven't done it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so out you go, effectively, mm-hmm. or this is not what I was looking for, right? So that was, that that, that really um, triggered, you know, and I've already been thinking about this topic of how do we deal with tension and the reason why I think this particular event, uh, as, 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 a, as, a, as a upset I was about it at the time, I, I think it's honest to say, is it really triggered me because one of the things it brought to life to me was like this kind of, expectation management that I often see with not just myself in that very situation, but also with other product managers, right? Where people have an expectation of that product role or the, the, the things that we're going to deliver, the value that we're going to add, which might not be aligned with what we can do or how we're set up and how do you work through that? And that's only one of the tensions that I cover in the book. There's plenty others, but that's really what it mm-hmm. triggered and, and really brought to life to me. Yeah. Let's dive into that one a little bit more. Cause I think, I think it's really a, a key element of product management is just managing this tension between, you know, expectations and reality or between what's, what's going to come and what, what does come. Um, so tell us more about, you know, what, what are your, uh, what are your experiences around that? Yeah, so I think, again, what I've learned the hard way is particularly on that point of expectations is, first of all, is understanding where the other person comes from, right? Uh, and I know that sounds that may sound super obvious, but going back to the world first role, one of the uh, mistakes I think I made there in hindsight was that in, in certain situations I was too much of a bulldozer. It was like, no, this is how you do it. You've been doing it all wrong. Listen to me. I know how we how this works. Let's do it that way, right? That doesn't work. <laughs> we, we know that. And I've learned that the hard way. Or maybe it works, you know, on a, a short-term basis, <laughs> but it's definitely not sustainable. Um, but if I look back on that startup experience and that broader question around how do you manage expectations is, it's a lot about checking in with the other person or people that you work with. And you don't, that doesn't mean that every day I go and say, holy, how am I doing? Or am I meeting your expectations? But it's more about where do you, where's the other person coming from? What are they trying to achieve? What is important to them? That doesn't mean that as a product person, uh, I'm going to completely flip the other way and be, uh, be another person that, you know, be something that I'm not or completely flip my other way, my way of working per se, but it might give us an opportunity to maybe end up in the middle somewhere. So for instance, if I go back to this example with the startup, if, if I maybe checked in more regular, more explicitly, and I'd felt that the need was really for a delivery manager, someone who just takes an idea from someone else and implements, mm-hmm. 
and 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 I would have thought about that. Maybe I would have changed some things in how I what I focus my attention on, how I manage my time. So I think that expectation management is really hard. Um, but key things for me are really checking in with the other person. And again, that doesn't mean explicitly asking, but also taking the time where they do an empathy map, for instance, to see mm-hmm. where the other person is coming from. And also looking at ways of how do I ask for that feedback if you do, right? Again, I said just now that you don't have to do it every day, but if you do it every month, particularly in your first couple of months or every quarter, outside of formal reviews or what have you, but just to say, am I doing the right thing? Are we focusing on the right things? Is there anything I'm missing? Again, very open questions, but having that ongoing conversation goes a long way, particularly for a role as a product person that in most companies is still quite fluid and undefined, and you do need that check-in from time to time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I love that you mentioned an empathy map because that's one of my favorite techniques for understanding stakeholders is, is using that empathy map to say, you know, what what are they experiencing on their side? What pressures are they facing? Yeah, exactly that. But it's yeah. easy when you're in the thick of things and you're thinking, oh, that stakeholder is just being difficult or what, where did that constraint come from to, to be in that mindset? Uh, but again, one of the things I talk about in the book is almost taking a balcony view where you or stepping into a helicopter to use another analogy where you look at, mm-hmm. okay, right, what's happening here? Where's that stakeholder coming from? What would be a wise wise person with a neutral perspective do here? Um, mm-hmm. And again, I'm not saying I always get it right, but I've learned a lot from from thinking that way and 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 and, and taking that dis, you know, creating that distance. Yeah, it really stands out to me that you you clearly have a growth mindset. You know that you're definitely focused on learning and growing, and you know uh, the fact that you're willing to be open and share along the way those things is is really valuable. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I do my best, but I think the reality is, like I said, there's no, there's no. I'm sure you know this as well, and, and the listeners too. There's no, there's no silver bullet, but I think that, as you say, that awareness that in itself, in my experience at least, goes a long way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's so true. There's so many areas where there's really no silver bullet, but it's giving it the focused attention and saying this is a thing I'm going to work on. Yeah, that, that you know makes progress, even if it's it's not uh, overnight. Exactly that, yeah. Yeah. So um, what what are some of the other examples of tension that uh, that you like to talk about? I think the, the classic one uh, for me is what I call in the book that you can't have it all tension. Although, you know, let's be honest with each other. We all work with a lot of people who like to think, and we sometimes like to think ourselves that we can have it all right. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about identifying trade-offs, communicating trade-off decisions, making those tough decisions, getting people on board with those um, is, 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 is really hard. And it's, it's a tension, right? Uh, another tension that um, I'm increasingly aware of, particularly now with COVID and, and everything that's happening in the world, is you know operating in the face of uncertainty so i say that i feel that as a product person we do that anyway at the best of times when there's lots of unknowns and things mm-hmm. that we just have to figure out by experimenting and trying but at the same time working with lots of people who don't have that same amount of certainty or sorry uncertainty in their day jobs right uh if i talk to accountants 
mm-hmm. their view of uncertainty is very different than how they go about it, right? And I can say, seriously, who wants to be an accountant? But that's <laughs> not how it works, right? You have to understand that whilst I'm operating very much at the face of uncertainty, they are looking for that certainty. And how do you how, how do you manage that, right? Because I need that accountant if I want to deliver a successful product or if I want to get budget to hire more people to work on a particular problem. Um, so that's another tension that I look at. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, uh, I, I like that that ties together with what you were just saying as well in terms of understanding that stakeholder and, and that their world is so different from ours, right? That, you know, uh, as product people, we spend a lot of time living in the uncertainty and becoming comfortable with it. Um, is that something that you've found has changed for you over your career in products, like how comfortable you are with, with uncertainty? I, you know, I have to be honest. I like certainty. So you could say, Mark, you're in the wrong job then. Uh, but I have learned, uh, <laughs> you know, I like a good plan, but, you know, I've learned to... Uh, to, to embrace it and but more importantly to find ways to 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 de- to embrace that uncertainty because it's one thing because at the beginning of my career yes I'll be honest with you I think anything that was uncertain you know I was a bit overwhelmed by it and maybe that's also partly because I used to be a project manager and every time I did a lovely Gantt chart in a Microsoft project I felt on top of the world right and I thought everything is going to go to plan and my my job is to make sure everything does go to plan because we mapped it all out and then suddenly you realize that that's never the case uh, but you know i've learned even got creative around how do i do workshops with um with people where we where we collectively embrace the uncertainty but also then flip it to to come up with some really constructive things to at least deal with uncertainty so just a simple tool that i really love and i've done for a few years now which is called the pre-mortem mm-hmm. and i don't know if you're familiar with that but you know we always yeah, we do, do it too yeah, <laughs> yeah. so uh, um you know it's easy to do post-mortem you've done a piece of work or you've done a project or you've released a product or a feature and then you reflect back on the process and what went well and which is great don't get me wrong the downside is that you know it's happened, right? You've got your lessons learned and hopefully you'll get an opportunity to apply them. Whereas a pre-mortem is you, you just haven't done anything yet, but you're just in a safe space with a group of relevant stakeholders, people working on something saying, what can go wrong for this project or this product to fail? Right. And suddenly people, I don't know about you, but when, whenever I do these sessions, you can see that people are like, Oh, this is, I have to, you know, this is, uh, I'm looking, you know, it's it's a bit of doom-mongering almost, like thinking about mm-hmm. things that go wrong. Surely everything is going to go right, right? But it's a nice way of embracing uncertainty, saying, we don't know. We think this yeah. is a risk. We've identified it. We don't know how we're going to solve it. But at least we've talked about it and we've identified it as one of the key things that we're going to tackle as part of us working together. And that's just an example of a way where you, you identify the uncertainty, you embrace it, but you also do something constructive with it. Yes, absolutely. Um, I don't know if uh, if you've also seen this, but in addition to the people being like, wow, we're talking so much about doom, I thought I was supposed to expect this to go well. I've also been in situations where um, there were some people in the room who hadn't felt heard about the doom that they saw coming and where you know there's a great release of tension, but they're now given this space to talk about it and say, here's where I'm scared of. 
Totally, totally. And I can, yeah, I've seen that as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's it's really empowering, you know, for the people to, to be able to do that. And it's really valuable for a project. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. agree. Yeah. Um, so what are, I, I know you have uh, the tensions broken into um, mind, matter and moves. Tell, tell us more about that. What do those mean to you? Yeah, it's, 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 it's really talking about where do those tensions come from, right? So tensions can come from the mind and that's our minds and the people that we work with. And that can create a lot of tension, whether it's disagreements, feedback they give each other, the way we behave with each other, how we collaborate. So that comes a lot from, from, from the minds of the people that we work with and people is such a critical part um, of product management the tension that's coming from the matter. So whether you're working on a physical product and let's say it's made of plastic and, you know, there's only so much you can do with plastic and you can't really force your will on it as much as you would like to sometimes, or you're working on a digital product where you've got code, which is, and I'm not an engineer myself, but it, it can be quite binary, right? It's black or white. But as soon as you throw a human or a creative mind into the mix, they want, no, I want gray. Or can we have a bit of a touch of orange in the code, right? Uh, and that causes tension. And then finally, moves um, where it's much more about tension created by certain decisions, uh, how much we plan or don't plan, going back to what we said earlier. So these kind of three categories each in their own right can cause a lot of tension mm -hmm. how do we deal with that tension right yeah absolutely so um one of the things that strikes me as i as i talk with you and, and hear about this is the concept of anti-fragile um you know the idea that you can use um the the friction or the tension to make something stronger instead of having it be a thing that makes something weaker um is that is that sort of one of the things that you're getting at? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I refer to that in the book and I've, I've learned a lot from um, thinkers like Nassim Taleb, who wrote the mm -hmm. uh, anti-fragile book, for instance. And, and that's exactly it. And it's the point I'm trying to make in the book is as much as it feels counterintuitive to embrace tension and to lean into it, because I can tell you for nothing, my primary written <laughs> response to tension used to be run away from it or hide somewhere, right? Because mm -hmm. we don't want it. Common response. <laughs> it's a common response. <laughs> yes. Um, but actually, to your point and to that point about being anti-fragile, it can be, you can use tension for good, right? Where, for instance, think about liberating um, uh, conversations where you actively ask difficult questions, not to get one over the other person that you're talking to, but just look for the weaknesses in your thinking or the assumptions that you're making. Again, to be able to do those things, you need a level of kind of trust and a safe space, a bit like the pre-mortem example that we looked at earlier. Mm -hmm. But that's a way where if you, if you do that regularly and you do it kind of seriously, you can turn attention of giving difficult feedback or trying to, you know, see weak spots in an, in an idea, actually turn it out, you know, uh, turn it into something which is really good for, for the product, for the customer, for the business. Yeah. So how, uh, tell us more about how you turn it into something really good. So a simple example is I do simple things like I said, deliberating, um, um, 
conversations that I have with people. But I do, for instance, a bit of role play where I deliberately take the, the position of a difficult stakeholder and in a safe space with my products uh, managers, we go through some of the difficult questions that he or she is likely to ask. And, you know, most of the time I get it right. Sometimes there's some unexpected questions. But just going through that exercise, um, as a simple example, really helps the product manager who, for instance, has to really tell a story about why we should invest more in this particular product or this particular or solving this problem, helps to sharpen their story and really tell a compelling story to get that end result, which is the buy-in for solving that problem or investing more into the product. It's Mm -hmm. just a simple example. I do brainstorm sessions, for instance, where the person who's explaining the idea is not looking, is not facing the group, right? So the way that works is that he or she will present a product idea. Let's say you've got a great idea, Holly, for a feature, and you want to do a brainstorm session, but you're a bit nervous because, you know, you're fragile at that point. You've got a great idea, but you're not sure whether the people that you work with are going to buy into it and you don't know how they're going to respond. A very simple way of doing that is you present it with, uh, feels a bit antisocial, but with us being remote, everything has changed anyway. But you're mm-hmm. facing, your back is facing the audience. So you might be on a whiteboard and talking through it or you're looking at your laptop, but you're not facing the people in the audience. And what that does is they can start taking notes and, and, and thinking about critique and critiquing your idea without you seeing them, right? Mm-hmm. So two benefits of that simple approach is that, A, I'm not worried as the presenter of the idea what the audience is going to think because I can't see them as I'm talking through it. And also, I feel quite liberated in the audience if I can just, you know, venture my, my, my honest thoughts on the idea and my constructive feedback without having to worry about the, the emotional response, seeing the emotional response of the person presenting. Right? But what you get out of that, that simple exercise is uh, some really good feedback that you can use to really improve on the idea or to think of another idea. So again, that's just a simple example of the how of deliberately looking for those difficult conversations, but doing it in such a way that you can use it for good to actually improve an idea or to come up with something new. Yeah. That's a really interesting one. I don't think I've ever, I've ever thought of uh, having, you know, somebody not looking and how that affects the kind of feedback that you get and, and the way it feels. So, I know you uh, you also do a lot of pointing out to to examples in the book. Do you have a, a favorite example that you'd like to share when you're talking about how how to use tension effectively? Um, I was going to say, ask me for for an example where you don't use it effectively. That, those are my favorites. No, I think uh, my example, uh, and I'm trying to think of a good one that I, that I cover in the book. But I think I, I talk a lot about kind of influencing without authority, right? Where you've got, uh, by default, you've got those tensions uh, because you're dealing, again, we talked about mind, matter, moves. You've got all those tensions in the mix and you're dealing with people who embody those tensions. So, for instance, I uh, talk about how I work with engineers uh, and how I really upset them because I started yelling at them 
because we were trying to throw each other under the bus didn't work but then when I started learning and, and applying that idea of how do I build a relationship with people who don't do the same thing as I do have maybe very different interests and and, and a different ways of working different views of the world and I don't have any authority over them because those engineers for instance they don't report into me but how can I build a relationship with them and what I've learned there is and what I've seen working well is that with those engineers, I didn't, you know, we didn't get better relationship because I tried to, you know, I was just trying to be their best friend all the time and made them yeah. cups of tea and stuff. That's not, that's not what I'm saying when I talk about influencing without authority or building relationships, but much more understanding what makes them tick. And what I like about that influencing without authority model that I cover in the book is that there are certain elements that make people tick. So some people really care about a vision and being inspired by, by bigger purpose, right? We all know those mm-hmm. people, but equally, I'm sure we all work with people who don't really care about that stuff, but they're very task oriented and that gives them energy. If they can just complete a particular project or get a, get an outcome after, after a two week sprint. So understanding that and spending the time again, comes back to what I said earlier about, the empathy side of things and listening and building relationships that way has really, has really helped me again, particularly in that case where I just, first of all, had fallen out with the engineers big time. And then Mm -hmm. obviously had to spend some time to repair that relationship. Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's interesting coming from different backgrounds. Some of us have the, you know, the experience of the falling out with the engineers or the tension between them. And some of us have the experience of maybe empathizing too much and being too, um, you know, not, not pushing back or providing tension mm. where there should be tension. You know, I think both of those things happen. One of the things that I'm also curious about, and I, I, I uh, am, um, this will be sort of my last question and then we can, uh, move on to any final thoughts from you. But I think that uh, one of the topics that I saw later on in the book was about um, ritual descent. And I'm curious, I'm curious to hear more about that. What, what does that mean? In principle, ritual descent is that that approach to descent is just something that you do on a regular basis, almost deliberately uh, seeking a position, position where you, where you challenge or where you take the position of, uh, a, you know, a critic or a competitor. Um, again, the exercise that I that described before, where you stand with your back to the audience, mm-hmm. is is an example of that, right? But what it is for me is is that the idea that descent becomes a ritual is something that you go through regularly and sometimes maybe somewhat artificially even create. Because again, I've seen a bit like you were alluding to just now, I've worked in teams or organization where it was like <laughs> descent all the time, mm-hmm. but not, <laughs> but just not, not, not very useful and not very, you know, that's the, the very unhealthy tension, I would argue. Uh, or it was all, you know, fantastic, one happy family, and it was all great until something went wrong and then it was, you know, it was all doom and gloom. And what I like about the idea of ritual descent, and again, you've got lots of different ways of doing this. I gave the example of that workshop where you don't face the audience. There mm-hmm. is, there are things 
they're called red teaming exercises where Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard of those, but the other person or group is the red team. So they're competitors and they're going to make the competitor moves uh, that they think the competitor will make. And, and, and you have a bit of a, not a battle, but you, you start countering that, right? But you're, what you're doing is you're having, you're playing out that descent, but in a, in a slightly safer and a more kind of normal kind of way, right? Because like I said, I think it's easy. Some people love the scent and they don't need any of these exercises and they feel also, and maybe not only that they love it, but they feel that they've got a relationship and the trust that whenever mm-hmm. they descend or they challenge or they push back, they know that the other person or other people are not going to have a problem with that because that's they know they know each other, they trust each other. But it's much harder to do that if you don't have that kind of environment where it's much more consensual or people are a bit more fragile or a bit nervous about, you know, challenging, especially when hierarchy is involved. So what kind of things can we do to make that become more of a ritual? So it's almost, it's not even a thing to challenge your boss when he or she has an idea and you think "Mm, that's not great from a competitive point of view or from a feasibility point of view. And that's, that's all it is really. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I think uh, I really like sort of the all the, there's a balancing of different tensions in in the exercises and toolkit that you share as well, that you've got some for people who need help with dissenting and others for people who need help with empathizing and, um, you know, so many more things as well. So what uh, what is your your favorite advice for people who are um maybe mid-career in, in product management who are uh, maybe, you know, I don't know about you, but I certainly talk to people who are mid-career who are not sure if they want to stay, if they want to stay in, in this discipline. And often it comes from discomfort with tension. Is that, uh, is that something that you have favorite advice for? The, um, the advice I would give there is to, to really investigate why that is. Cause it is, uh, very easy, and I, you don't have to be mid-career for, to feel that. Is that you? That tension is just overwhelming. Or you're thinking, is it really worth it? I had yet another difficult stakeholder meeting, or my product flopped, or we didn't get it over the line. Whatever it is, I don't think that gets goes away. And I think that's 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 a key point in my book. That that tension is always going to be there, whether you're mid-career or junior career or bit further down in your career i think it's it's it might manifest itself differently so the 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 advice i would give and a, is is to really take a step back that's my favorite advice that's not only from a career perspective but also when you're in the moments and you feel like everything is 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 getting too much or the other person is not being very nice or it's all difficult is to 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 pause to literally just take a moment and again especially if you want to look at it from uh, from a career perspective, like do I really want to be a product person? I appreciate your pause might be a bit longer because you might want to look at pros and cons, like is this really worth it? Uh, are these tensions, can I manage them? Do they outweigh the, the fun and the exciting aspects of being a product person? That's a longer pause. But even in a moment when, and again, we all have those moments when you feel it's getting too much, uh, Take that, take that step back. Don't do anything drastic. Just take a moment, like, what's happening here? Where's, where's the other person coming from? How can I influence this? Can I influence this? How can I manage myself? First, mm-hmm. before I manage 
what's happening around me. But that's, again, the, the pause is, is key for me there. So the pause and the moment of reflection that it brings. So it has been really great to talk to you today. Um, how can people find you if they want to learn more? Um, a couple of places, I guess the usual places. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me, Mark Abraham, Mark with a C. That's quite critical. Same for my website, which is markabraham.com. And I'm on Twitter as MAA1. All right, great. Well, thank you so much. It was fantastic to have this conversation with you. And I'm sure our listeners will gain a lot from it. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. Really enjoyed it. Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.